My name's Frank, and for those that um, I haven't had the chance to meet yet, meet yet, sorry, and I'm one of the elders uh, here, um, and I've got the privilege of uh, taking us through our passage um, for this week. Um, now, before I dive into uh, this week, uh, you might not know this, but Jake was supposed to be preaching on Philippians 2, 12 to 18 last week, um, but he's had to take time out of, of, of preaching and singing um, because he's developed laryngitis. Uh, which means he can't really strain his voice. Um, so fair to say that's, that's been really hard for him, um, given that his role here at the Hallows, it pretty much hinges on his ability to um, sing and preach. So I just want to voice a quick prayer for Jake um, on behalf of us as a church. Um, Lord God, um, we want to lift up our brother Jake to you. Um, we want to pray that you would do a work in his body, Lord, um, that you would restore um, restore him um, from laryngitis, Lord, that he would make a really, a really, really quick recovery, God. Um, thank you for all that he is, um, and thank you for all that he does for us um, as a church, and we just really, really want to, lo- really long to, to see him kind of restored into those roles, um, just, yeah, for the good of the body and, and, and for his good as well. So just want to lift him up to you in prayer, in your name, Lord. Amen. Now, because Jake was out of action last week, I agreed to step in. And then in a bizarre turn of events, um, me and my wife were at a swimming hole last Saturday, and somehow, don't really know how this happened, but I managed to get a piece of metal in my eye. And then it started to rust. That's what I found out later on from the doctor. Um, long story short, this basically caused um, a lot of like uh, inflammation and swelling, and it was weeping a lot. and. I didn't get any sleep on the Saturday night and then into the Sunday morning. And I got up at like half seven in the morning out of bed and I like tried to look at my notes for the, the sermon and it, my, the eye was so sensitive to light, there was just absolutely no way that I was gonna be able to deliver that sermon. So I, actually, I got on the phone to Jeremy McKinney um, with about two hours before the service was you know, supposed to start. Uh, and thankfully he was able to step in um, for me. So. I stepped in for Jake, and then I got taken out, and then, <laughs> and then Jeremy stepped in um, at really, yeah, very much last minute, and um, just want to say a huge thank you to him again for that, and, you know, I've only heard good things um, about that time last week, and kind of gutted that I was in bed rather than uh, here with you all. So before I um, turn your attention to the passage for today, I really wanted to draw out something from last week that for me... I really, really felt like the Holy Spirit like really laid it on my heart to share. And it really felt like, kind of like, out of all the things that I wanted to share last week, this was kind of the main thing that I really felt like the Lord kind of had prompted me to share. And it's to do with that verse in Philippians where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, whenever we encounter verses in the Bible that talk about fear, there's a temptation to sort of move on quickly and sort of skate over them and almost sometimes try and explain them away um, out of our kind of unease about that, about that phrase, the fear of the Lord. Um, Jake gave me his study notes for last week um, and they were really, really helpful in you know, my preparation for what was supposed to be uh, the sermon I was going to do last week. Um, and he drew, my, he drew my attention to the fact that in In the Old Testament, when the writers talk about the fear of the Lord, they're not talking about being afraid of God. Because otherwise, 
they couldn't say something like this. Um, Psalm 130, verse 4, says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's the ESV. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. UK-based theology professor Mike Reeves points out the apparent contradiction in this verse. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved would make sense. So would, but with you there is judgment that you may be feared. But that's not what it says. Reeves goes on. Stranger still is the fact that the psalmist doesn't look afraid of God. Quite the opposite. Straight after in verse 4, he goes on to write of how his soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. So he fully embraces the fact that with the Lord there is faithful love and redemption in abundance. So Paul, when he says to the Philippians, live out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not talking about being afraid of God. No, the right fear of God in the Bible is quite explicitly a blessing of the new covenant. And the same fear that Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would have for the Father in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3. Here's Reeves for one last time. He says this. These verses tell us that it was Jesus' delight to fear the Lord. Jesus' fear is part of his pleasurable adoration of his Father. Indeed, it is the very emotional extremity of that wonder. Those words just went straight deep into my soul when I read them. The very emotional extremity of that wonder. I was left basically just saying, whoa, you know, wow, in my study of of that text. If you've been around kind of good gospel preaching for any length of time, you've probably heard someone quote the North African St. Augustine and his famous idea that we'll only, be, we'll only be able to flourish in the Christian life if we have rightly ordered loves. Get God on the throne of your heart and get everything else to revolve around him. That's the way to true joy and peace. Praise God for Augustine, as this is, of course, right and true. And we all know from experience what can happen when our loves are disordered and the havoc that that can wreak in our lives. I want to put it to you this morning that fear, just like love, has immense power to define the people we become. I spoke recently with my middle brother. I'm the oldest of uh, three boys. Um, God bless my mum. She did a great job somehow raising the three of us. Uh, yeah, I spoke to my middle brother, and he was, he was talking about what it was like to grow up in a, in a gritty working-class ex-industrial town in the north of England where we grew up. My brother is a creative type and he was always like drawing cartoons and he was kind of like always coming up with like a new idea for like a video game like before that was cool. Um, And at school though, his peers, they sneered at his creativity and his quirky personality. And as a result, he shrank back from the person that God had made him to be out of fear that his peers would reject him for being different. He reflected on how 
He is no longer in touch with any of those people who he feared would reject him and wondered out loud about why he willingly hid who he really was to win their affection. The shaping effect of fear, it shows itself in a million ways. If you fear poverty, you'll never be able to be truly generous. If you fear loneliness, you won't be able to have healthy relationships. If you fear failure, you will never take any risks. The Bible calls us to fear God because unlike anything or anyone in the entire universe, fearing him makes us more and not less like the people we were created to be. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Rightful God-honoring fear, a fear that acknowledges that we are dealing with a holy one who formed the universe by speaking a few words, will lead us not into smaller, contorted versions of ourselves, but into the beautiful and unique people that God so carefully created us to be. Think of it another way. If we don't fear God, then we'll fear something else. And that something will only harm us. But if we fear God, we don't have to fear anything else because he has us under his wings, according to Psalm 91 verse 4. Fear of God is actually incredibly freeing because it ushers us into a fearless life lived for his glory. So with that said, let's turn to our passage for today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. Let me read it for us. Hopefully it'll come up on the screen. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. Thank you that it is breathed out by you. Thank you that there is such power in your words. Just help us to 
just to pause um, before we go any further, just to, just to realize what we are dealing with right now. Lord, thank you so much that you've given us your, your breathed out truth for our good and for teaching, training in righteousness. And thank you so much for this passage, Lord. Thank you for this ancient letter that we get to peer into today. Really pray that you'd open our eyes to some of the uh, nuggets of gold in this text. And I pray, yeah, that we would be able to uh, live out the application of that together as a church. Amen. Now, growing up as a Christian whose main passion in life was sport, it was no surprise that the favorite week of my year was Sports Plus Camp. Sports Plus Camp involved five hours of sport a day. Imagine that, five hours of sport a day, unbelievable. Relevant and grace-filled teaching, and then my favorite part of all of it, three massive meals a day. And I'm, I'm talking like buffet-style, breakfast, lunch, dinner, unbelievable. Obviously, that is what you need after five hours of sport a day, but it just went, yeah, went straight, straight down every time, no, no, no questions asked. Third, went back for thirds every single meal. Um, the camp was, was run mostly by volunteers, and there was one volunteer in particular that everyone knew by name. He's a guy called Howie. And he was in his late 70s when I was like a teenager uh, attending these camps. And he made it his mission that nobody on that camp would go dehydrated. He wanted everyone to be optimally hydrated. He'd set up these water stations on these fold-out tables, and somehow... He managed to cover every single square inch of those tables with water cups. And not only would he make sure that you had enough water, he'd always give you a word of encouragement as you drank down your water, so that you were left feeling both physically cared for and spiritually cared for by Howie. Fast forward seven years or so, and I'm now a volunteer leader on Sports Plus Camp. One afternoon, all the elders were got, sorry, all the leaders, sorry, were called together for a meeting, at which Howie stood up and told everyone that this was to be his last year serving at Sports Plus Camp, as he was now in his 80s. What followed was one of the most beautiful Christian gatherings I've ever been a part of, as one by one, people stood up to say a few words about Howie and the way that he'd served so faithfully over the years. I can vividly recall that as people started to speak of his love for Jesus and the way he loved and served those around him, people began to weep, including an ex-professional rugby player who prior to meeting Jesus in prison had been one of the most feared pub brawlers in all of the UK and who was the only rugby player ever to receive two lifetime bans for on-pitch violence. We were all moved that day as we all recognized that in Howie, we had a vivid example of Christian service. We'd watched him for over a decade as he turned up year in and year out to make sure the water was served and the people stayed hydrated. Examples like this are rare, which is why it caused such an outpouring of emotion. We were looking at a man who had decided in his heart to do his very best to love Jesus and the people around him. 
He never drew attention to himself. He wasn't looking for a way to serve in a more glamorous way. He simply honored God in his own small way. And the cumulative effect of such service was enormous. Our passage for this week focuses on two people who were a huge blessing both to Paul and to the church in Philippi, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So first, we've got Timothy, who Paul puts forth as a model for the Philippians to imitate. According to Paul, Timothy has proven character, which he had displayed in his faithful service, verse 22. And Paul also states that he will genuinely care for the Philippians, something that Paul can't say about some of the other leaders, both in Rome and in Philippi. Offering up Timothy as a godly example to follow is something Paul has already done with Jesus himself, the ultimate example, and with Paul himself as well in the same letter. So in chapter two of Philippians, in verses five to 11, Paul paints a picture of our servant savior, Jesus, and the way in which he laid everything aside that was rightfully his, as the son of God, which was namely everything, and emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant in all that he did, most notably in his death on the cross, his ultimate act of loving service. Paul then offers up himself as a godly example to follow. In chapter one, verses 12 to 26, Paul writes that when he was in prison, he saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to his fellow inmates and the jailers, which resulted in the whole palace guard hearing that Paul was a follower of Christ. He then goes on to explain how everything he does is all done out of his love for Christ. He writes that if he dies, then that's great because he gets to go and be with Jesus sooner. But if he lives, then great, for it will give him more time to build the church and preach the gospel. Now at this point, I just wanna make a side note on examples. Examples are all well and good, but if all we have in our Christian discipleship are examples, then we'll end up feeling crushed under the weight of these examples. Jesus is of course our perfect example, but if he was only an example, then that is not good news. Trying to grow as a Christian by simply following an example never works because we will quickly fall into pride if we do well or despair if we are doing badly. The gospel says that Jesus is our great high priest before he is our great high example. Our salvation comes from his once for all sacrifice for us Nothing more, nothing less. We are justified before the throne of Almighty God because of the work of our great high priest. This means that every time we fail to live up to the example of Jesus or the example of Paul, we can quickly come before the throne of Almighty God and ask for forgiveness and a renewed power to live as our greatest, as our greatest examples lived. Back to the text. When talking of Timothy, Paul also writes that he has no one else like-minded. Now, like-minded here can be more literally translated like-souled. Paul is describing a deep bond between him and Timothy. 
They're as close as two friends can come to the one flesh union of marriage. Think about what this must have meant for Paul. Paul's a man who had the kind of life story that Netflix would quickly snap up and make into a documentary. Paul gives a condensed summary of his trials in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 28. He says this, Five times I received the 40 lashings minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Just kind of throws it in there as an aside. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, from robbers, from dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other, not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Now, the fact that not getting bit by a poisonous snake, oh, sorry, the fact that getting bitten by a poisonous snake didn't make it into that list teaches us about how hard Paul's ministry must have been. It really did put him through the ringer. Given the great cost of his ministry, how much comfort and encouragement must Timothy have brought to Paul? To have someone who he could say, this man is like sold. This man gets me. When I am in his presence, I can fully relax, knowing that our souls strike the same ground note and we are in tune with one another. It's hard to imagine Paul would have survived his ministry if it wasn't for Timothy. Our church is in desperate need right now of this kind of gospel friendship and companionship. Though our trials are anywhere close to the intensity and severity that Paul's were, we still had a very, very rough time of late. And in our desire to honor Jesus in the city of Seattle, we have absolutely no guarantee that things will get any easier for us. If anything, things could get harder for us. One thing is for sure though, if we cultivate the kind of gospel friendship that Paul and Timothy shared, if we know that we have people who are like-souled with us, then we will find it that little bit easier to keep faithfully putting one foot in front of the other as we move into the future. Paul's desire is to send Timothy to them, and then later, ideally, he would join later. After Paul shares his desire to send Timothy to the Philippians, along with his own desires to see them, Paul turns to Epaphroditus, we know from Philippians 4.18 that Epaphroditus brought a financial gift to Paul from the Philippians. And he almost died on the way. Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back to his home church in Philippi so that he can comfort them that he, was physically, that he physically recovered from his illness. And also, Epaphroditus would deliver the letter to the Philippians as he went back. Paul describes Epaphroditus in three ways in verse 25. Firstly, he says he is a brother, not by blood, but by the Holy Spirit. This is the level of relationship, the level of closeness that we should be able to say of one another if we are in Christ. 
If you cannot look around this room and say, there's my brother, there's my sister, then we've missed something of the deeply unifying power of the gospel. Listen to Jesus' words here in Matthew 12, 46 to 50. It says this. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. If our relationships stop at anything short of what Jesus describes here, then we are missing something. It could be that we do not know Jesus as our perfect older brother, and so we do not know how to offer that same kind of love to others. Perhaps we have things that we need to say to someone. Perhaps we've been hurt by a careless word or an act of unkindness that we haven't shared. I have two earthly brothers, as I shared earlier, and they're among my best friends on earth. But our closeness doesn't mean we haven't had hard conversations. If anything, our closeness has led to more hard conversations than with mere acquaintances or new friends that we haven't gotten that deep yet. It's very hard to build relationships like this on a Sunday, as we only get so much time to talk to each other. Missional communities, which are our midweek, smaller, localized gatherings, give us a weekly rhythm where we get to eat a meal together, dig deeper into the Bible together, share what is going on in our lives, and pray for one another. MCs provide the cadence, the intentionality, and the space for true brotherly and sisterly relationships to grow and flourish. We're gonna be relaunching our MCs in September. So if you're not already a part of one, keep your eyes open for new MCs and old MCs in your area that might be a great fit for you. Next, Paul describes Epaphroditus as a co-worker. Now, when I say the word co-worker, you might have all kinds of responses, some good and some maybe bad. The saying goes that you spend more time with your co-workers than with your own family. Although, working on, alongside other flawed and sinful people can sometimes be nothing short of a nightmare. They can also become, sorry, on the other hand, they can also become some of our closest friends. As there is something uniquely bonding about working alongside another, shoulder to shoulder, hearts meshed for the same cause. Maybe you can think of someone you worked with who became very close to you and who made the work that you were doing all the more rewarding and life-giving. Paul and Epaphroditus were co-workers for the cause of the gospel spreading throughout the ancient world. They were both 100% sold on the vision and they were not gonna stop to proclaim the beauty and brilliance of Jesus to everyone they met. Remember, Epaphroditus put his life on the line to bring Paul that gift from the Philippians. If you're someone who is longing for deeper Christian companionship, a great place to start is by serving alongside others. 
Debs and I, we talk often about the work parties that we had when we were redecorating this space, which I think you can agree is really beautiful now. We went far further, relationally speaking, with a paint roller in our hands than we would have done with five-minute conversations here or there over coffee. In the coming weeks, we're going to be repainting the outside of our building, both to weatherize it and to give it a bit of a freshen up. I would encourage you not to think of these times as an onerous burden, but as a great opportunity to get to know people and strengthen existing relationships with people you already know. The last words Paul uses of Epaphroditus, our fellow soldier. Now I have absolutely no frame of reference for this, but I can imagine that fighting on the front lines forges a bond between you and your fellow soldiers like nothing else. If you've ever seen the TV show Band of Brothers, that maybe gives you a good window into the strength and depth of the friendships forged when your life is literally on the line. If you're like me, you'll regularly forget that living as a Christian means we are in a constant battle with the spiritual forces that are opposed to God and seek to tear down and destroy the kingdom of God by any means necessary. If we were more switched on to this reality, I believe that our relationships with one another would look drastically different than how they currently do. Let me give you a few examples. We would pray for each other more fervently and more frequently. In the famous passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20, Paul urges his readers in verse 18 to pray at all times in the spirit with every request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Paul assumes that we will constantly be in prayer for one another, trusting that prayer is powerful in our fight against sin, the world, and the devil. Secondly, we apply the Bible into each other's lives. In Ephesians 6, 17, Paul describes the word of God as the sword of the spirit. Now this is interesting to note because this is the only offensive weapon in the entire of Paul's famous armor of God passage. And here's the thing. The devil has absolutely no creative power. What I mean by that is that he is not powerful enough to make anything that hasn't already been made by Almighty God. All the devil can do is twist and distort and lie. That's his MO. And sadly, he is very good at it. But he is still a very limited being with very limited power. This makes sense of why Paul calls the word of God a sword. When the devil tells us lies, we are to pull out our Bibles and fight back with the truth of God. Sometimes in the pressure cooker that is life, we fail to see how we are allowing the devil to subtly bend our worldview. That's when we need a brother or a sister to spot where we are too weak to draw our own sword and to draw theirs instead, speaking the truth of the gospel over our lives, which will enable us to see more clearly and to reject the lies we were beginning to slide into. Thirdly, 
Wartime mentality helps to avoid division. History teaches us that an army divided is an army defeated. If we forget that we are in the thick of a war, then it is so easy to become sucked into petty disagreements, gossip, slander, and disunity. However, if we heed Ephesians 6.12, which tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. We cannot fight a coherent battle against evil if we are engaged in petty infighting with each other. We need to be quick to be reconciled to one another, quick to forgive, quick to show mercy, always looking to promote unity. Unity is literally, oh, thankfully it's got nothing uh, on it there, so even if I dropped it, <laughs> would have been all right. Uh, where was I? Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, always looking to promote unity. Sorry. So yeah, the, literally one of the major overarching themes of the entire book of Philippians is unity. Um, and it's, I think it's a work of God that we're going through this text at this time in our lives as a church. I just think it's really, really great timing. So we should be always looking to promote unity. And the Hallows Church has gone through a season which has all the hallmarks of spiritual attack. We are in the thick of a fierce battle. And if we take our eyes off that reality, even for a moment, then we're in deep trouble. So let's lay anything aside that is detracting from our unity as a church and strive to fight shoulder to shoulder through prayer, the application of scripture, and rejecting anything that might force a wedge between us and cause us to turn against one another. Praise God for the godly examples we have in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Praise God for the men and women we know personally who, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, stand out from the crowd because of their service. Let's aspire to grow into disciples of Jesus who genuinely care for the needs of those around us in a way that draws people into fellowship with Jesus and with his people. Why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the letter to the Philippians and we thank you so much that it is a very, very timely um, letter for us to be reading right now. Thank you that pretty much every week it just feels like the application just falls out of the text into our lives. We praise you, Lord, for um, the example of Christ. Um, we thank you that he isn't just an example. Thank you that he is our great high priest before he is our great high example and thank you that he laid, he laid everything down for us to be saved. Thank you that we can come before your throne with boldness, not because of our own merit, but because of all that he's done that's been given to us um, freely by your grace. So yeah, praise you so much for, for that. And we do thank you, Lord, for examples as well. We thank you that it really helps us to just get a, a real sense of what it, what it looks like to, um, to honor Christ and to, and to build up the church. Thank you for people like Howie who in our lives have given us just such an incredible uh, picture of a Christian service. And we really pray, Lord, that we would long to, to become like them, Lord, that we would be a, people would be able to look at us and say they love Jesus, they love the church, they've, they've given their life you know, to serve um, gospel work.
just really do pray that you would, um, that you would continue to deepen, um, deepen our bonds as a church, Lord, that we would be able to say of one another that we are like sold and that we can look around and genuinely say that's a brother and that's a sister. Help us, Lord, in this season to stay united, Lord, and to continue to look to you for everything, keep our eyes fixed on you. Um, I'm just reminded this week of um, a line from a book that I read a few years ago where it talks about we have a compass but not a map, and that just feels like such a timely word for this, for this season that we're in, Lord. We, we do not have a map. We don't know where things are going to go. We, we, um, we have no idea what things are going to look like in a year or two years, but we have a compass. We have a true north. We have, we have Jesus uh, to fix our eyes upon as we run this race. So I thank you so much, Lord, that even in the, even in the midst of the confusion, Lord, we have uh, one thing that will never change, and I thank you that we can see you um, we can see you with utter clarity, Lord, and we can fix our eyes on you. So I pray that you would just guide the rest of our time together. In your name. Amen.